Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. We, your hosts, are blessed to have some excellent facilities for our research work, but some aren't so lucky. What is it like to work at the frontier? So today, we have a special guest today, Phil Ashton, who is a bioinformatician at Malawi Liverpool Welcome Unit, based in Blantyre in Malawi, to talk to us about that. So Phil, you've been working out of the UK for some time. Where have you been so far? Hi, Nabil. Thanks for, for having me on. My wife and I got married in September 2016, and I think three or four days later, we packed up our lives and moved everything to to Vietnam, to to Ho Chi Minh City, which is the commercial capital of Vietnam uh, in the south of the country. That was a big couple of months. She had a PhD viva, we got married, and then we moved across continents all um, all within six weeks, I think. Wait, so, so why did you guys move uh, to Ho Chi Minh? To escape the in-laws. Essentially, it was just kind of, you know, the last, last opportunity to do that while we were still kind of relatively, relatively young and uh, unencumbered. And it was kind of, you know, not really a rational decision, uh, not a hugely rational decision. And again, this isn't what I tell fellowship application panels. It's, it was all part of my master plan to... Uh, to solve uh, diarrhea in a minute. Basically, I've been a PhD for about eight years between my between my PhD and postdoc. You know, it's quite easy. You know, if you have if you have a couple of kids or whatever, and you just kind of maybe stay there for the rest of your life. Me and my wife decided to do something a bit stupid and kind of quit our jobs and move to Vietnam um, to do a job that I found on Twitter. And when you said you're moving to Vietnam, my first thought was, oh, you moved to Okru. You must be moving to work with Steve Baker because he does lots mm. of bacteria. But no. So it was, it was actually Steve's tweet that led to, me getting, led to me getting the job. He just said, does anyone want to come and work in Vietnam for six to 12 months on fungal genomes? And, you know, in the same way that we kind of wanted a, a change from, from living in the UK and everything, I, I was quite interested in fun, fungi, fungi, fungi or, already. Uh, I'd seen a couple of talks at conferences and thought basically that the field was where, where, microbi- where bacterial bioinformatics was kind of five to eight years prior to that. So really quite poorly developed. And, you know, thought there was quite a lot of, I thought it'd be quite interesting to switch kingdoms, you know, before I got too old to learn new tricks. So yeah, I changed to working on uh, cryptococcus meningitis, uh, fungal disease caused by uh, cryptococcus neoformans, primarily affects people with HIV. You turned out to be a very famous bioinformatician in Vietnam. I remember being in ASMNGS about two years ago, the last in-person one, and we all piled into an Uber 
And one of the one of the people was asking, I think it was Kate Baker was asking someone, oh yeah, you know, where do you live? She's like Vietnam. Okay, he was like, oh, wow, you know, I know someone in bioinformatics uh, over in Vietnam. His name is Phil Ashton. Do you know him? And it turns out it was your wife. <laughs> so famous. Even my wife has heard of me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You're the only politician in Vietnam that anyone has ever heard of, certainly in that conference. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just looking at her. Uh, I have her caricature, actually, that was done at that conference um, i was there i office. saw it in person being being created yeah i'm, yeah. I'm looking at it right now it's a good conference it's it's uh unfortunately virtual this time so uh it won't be the same but there was a glory kind of couple of years wasn't there there was mm and asm ngs and it just seemed like and various hackathons and things and it seemed like we were all getting together all the time and having lots of fun in exotic places like Birmingham and Warwick and uh, good times. Washington. Yeah. Very exotic. <laughs> <laughs> Inkston as that well. Weird. Don't forget that. Inkston, yeah. Inkston, yeah. I mean, Inkston, yeah, has its charms. Anyway, in, in Vietnam, you, you decided to have a bit of a, a family. How did that go? Uh, well, yeah, it happened in the usual manner, I guess, Andrew. I, I probably don't want to go into too many details on a family no, show, you. but. Yeah, so we, we had the baby, our son Joshua, uh, was born in Vietnam. So, you know, lots of people go back to the UK or whatever to have kids if you're based at the unit there. But essentially that means that we would have, have to spend kind of two or three months apart um, when, when my was wife was very me? pregnant or when the baby was very small. So, um, yeah, we had the baby there, which, um, you yeah, know, all worked out okay. Yeah, and, you know, Vietnamese people love kids, they love babies. You know, if you go into a pub in, in Vietnam with with your kid, then basically the, the staff will just come along and, like, take the kid off you, basically, without asking, and just kind of go and entertain it for 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, oh, wow, that's brilliant. People... Yeah, yeah, it's great. And on flights and stuff, the Vietnam Airlines ladies uh, do the same. One of the really nice things about Vietnam. And then you decided not to come back to the UK, but to move directly to Malawi. That's a pretty big move. So we moved to Vietnam for my job, as, we, as we've talked about, for the fungal work. And then basically me and my wife take it in turns to decide kind of which of us is, you know, who are we going to move for? Because we have the kind of classic two career issue. Um, so my wife got this job as the lead molecular biologist at the unit here. So she's on a three-year contract. So we're here for at least three years. And yeah, I just kind of managed to managed to just sneak in before uh, before the lockdown hit and before Malawi cancelled all the international flights. So that was lucky. What is it like working over Malawi? I know the unit over there will probably be very well resourced, but are you dependent on things like satellite, internet, um, generators for electricity, that kind of thing? Um, so obviously I've been working from home primarily for the last, for the six months or so that we've been here. Internet is 4G, MiFi. So you definitely don't want to be downloading all of your BAMs for, for visual inspection. Uh, you know, it costs about a dollar per gigabyte. So, you know, you're definitely very conscious of data usage in a way you wouldn't be if you were, you know, in your office at the Quadrum or at PHE or what have you. Power 
cuts, yeah, they have quite a lot of power cuts. When we first arrived, it's more or less daily. So basically, Malawi doesn't produce enough electricity for its needs, especially. I think there was actually, they say that it's especially in the dry season because it's uh, primarily hydropower in, in Malawi. And so when it's in the depths of dry season, obviously there's less water, so there's less electricity. So they have this delightful thing called load shedding, where basically they just cut off your power for, you know, six to eight hours per day. And I'd just like to have a brief side note that the, the slogan of, of ESCOM, the Malawian power company, is power all day, every day, despite this policy of uh, basically giving us power cuts every day, which goes slightly against the slogan, but uh, never mind. That's nice. Most people, and, and us included, have what's called um, an inverter in your house, which is essentially four or five big truck batteries all wired together that goes through an inverter, I think, to convert it from AC to DC or whichever way around it needs to go, which powers the most of the house, um, the low power things in the house when the power's gone. So that definitely takes a little bit of getting used to. You know, you can't have, you know, the washing machine on or, you know, you can't blend up a smoothie while the, while the power's down, but you can charge your laptop and your phone and stuff. So. And do you live out in the community or do you live in a compound? Uh, we live in the community. So we live in a, a very nice house that has been in the MLW family for at least 10 years, I think. People always come around and they're like, oh, I, I came here when, you know, so-and-so lived there 12 years ago. And basically, one of the doctors at the hospital uh, owns a house. And when people are leaving, what we did when we were here for my wife's interview, we just kind of asked around, asked if anyone was leaving. Because a lot of the PhD students, the clinical PhD students, they come for two years and then they go. So it's quite a, a constant kind of uh, churn of, of people. And so we just asked, is anyone leaving? And then this this family were, were leaving and... Yeah, so we just came around, saw the house, thought we liked it, and that was good enough for us. That's awesome. Yeah, it and definitely what... helps not to be too fussy when you're when you're when you kind of live in other countries. I think that people who are very particular, I think, would have challenges. But we're quite easygoing, so um, most things are okay. And in terms of actually getting bioinformatics done, do you have a data center on site, or do you do everything in the cloud, or what? Yeah, I do everything on the fine, fine MRC Climb or MRC Climb Big Data resource, which is absolutely invaluable to my work. And I just like to give those Could guys a Could you write the name, out. please? I, I'm one of the uh, the co-eyes on the grant. So uh, could you write oh, okay. that down so that we can, you know, use your testimonial? Absolutely. Yeah, happy to. Yeah, I try to always reference it. In, in papers, but maybe I should double check. I'm still but what about internet connections? Because uh, using a terminal, you know, for, for such a long distance, particularly over say 4G must be quite frustrating. Not really. So, so Malawi, you know, is such a different setting to Vietnam. Like Vietnam, very obviously a lot of challenges, but really rapidly growing economy. 
uh, you know, life is getting better for most people every year, like year on year. Everyone has a has a three G, four G phone. Everyone has a smartphone. Everyone's using it all the time. But Facebook and YouTube and everything. Whereas Malawi, I think it's only eight percent or eleven percent of people actually have power in their homes. So you know the networks are not super busy, and we're kind of pretty close to central in the in the middle of the kind of commercial capital. So the network is actually very good and probably better than it was in, in Vietnam for the, the 4G network. So usually I've got the speeds of like 50 megabits per second, something like That's that. It's actually so, faster than I have here in the UK near Cambridge. <laughs> yeah, probably a bit more expensive as well. But uh, yeah, I've got, I've got no complaints there really. And, and again, we don't have any sequences at MLW. So I usually have to go through various loops to avoid downloading data to uh, my local computer because, you know, it's good enough for, for SSH and for web browsing and stuff, but any kind of, you know, no, I don't want to be downloading, you know, a Kraken GTDB database costs like a hundred pounds. You have to be a, a little bit cautious. And what organisms are you working on these days? Um, so my, my bread and butter is salmonella typhi. <laughs> um, yeah, salmonella typhi uh, and salmonella, uh, invasive non-typhoidal salmonella. So I'm working with Professor Melita Gordon, who's worked on these organisms for at least around 20 years, I think, or so. Been based, uh, she's a clinician researcher with an interest in vaccines. Yeah, she's done this massive study immunizing 30,000 kids against salmonella typhi with a new uh, vaccine and then they're doing lots of monitoring um, to, to check whether the vaccine has been efficacious so that's producing lots of salmonella typhi isolates um, which we're going to look at for sequencing and with sequencing and there's some drug resistance issues and then a, a nasty XDR salmonella outbreak in the in the pediatric nursery at the hospital as well the queen elizabeth central hospital that we that mlw is affiliated with is that the same xdr that they have in pakistan so so that's an xdr um non-typhoidal salmonella basically south asia is way ahead of us when it comes to drug resistant typhoid uh, and actually it's quite funny because um you know clinicians and everyone if you come out here and you've worked in London, say, then in London, most of the typhoid uh, is from travelers to the Indian subcontinent, where it's all ciprofloxacin resistant, or primary, it's almost all ciprofloxacin resistant. Whereas in Africa, cipro resistance is much less uh, of an issue. Uh, and actually typhoid historically in Africa wasn't a major issue. It's only more recently that it's become an issue. And so you come here, as a clinician, you might come here and think, oh, well, you know, why is it such a big deal? You know, they're talking about these cipro-resistant typhies, like all typhies cipro-resistant, isn't it? But obviously, if that drug resistance gets into the population here, then that's just going to make uh, an already bad situation even worse. So how do you do your typing for salmonella typhi? I use Phoenix. Um, I think maybe I'm the only person outside PHE that uses it, but yeah, I use uh, the PHE kind of 
pipeline to go from reads to SNPs and then the consensus faster. And then I use SNP sites to extract the SNP positions and then, you know, phylogenetics. Yeah, shout out there. Um, and then, um, yeah, genotypy. Yeah, actually cat people from, I'm collaborating with people from Cat Holtz Lab. So for many of the typey, they've already run genotypy on it before I get there. So That's awesome. I'm using uh, genotypy now in my project. So it's, um, if, if I didn't know about it, if I didn't find it on my own, um, just through GitHub search, I would have just found out about it now. So, um, yeah, I, I love those kinds of projects, you know, the, the, the ones that let us all kind of speak the same language when we're talking about clades and such. And I, I've always been very glad that I've never had to write one myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about writing because, it and then I, and then I found it. So thank you, Cat Holt Group. <laughs> yeah. And just like identifying these like SNP barcodes and everything that you have to find to, to do them just seems like a, a bit of a headache. Your, your bread and butter right now is Typhi. I don't know if, if um, this kind of is in your universe too, but in my universe, usually I have kind of like the mission of the organization. And then I also have my academic interests. So if that's the same with you, is there, it sounds like Salmonella Typhi might be like the overriding mission. Do you have like an academic project also? So I'm on a, a one year contract to start with. So I got very lucky, essentially. Uh, you know, we came here for my wife, and then uh, I collaborated with Jay Hinton at University of Liverpool previously, who's a close collaborator of Melita. And so kind of via that, I got a, a one-year position. You know, at my career stage, I'm kind of thinking, I'm looking for the tran- transition to independence, as they say with a, a fellowship application probably. Um, and at the moment I'm thinking about E. coli diarrhea, which I, I quite like for a number of reasons, partly because it's just a bit, it doesn't really, it's not currently, it doesn't have a nice story. You know, E. coli diarrhea. I think Andy, Andy have you done, you've done some e-tech work, right? Uh, yeah, I have. In fact, I just submitted some assemblies uh, only a few days ago for uh, e-tech. Yeah. What's your, what's your, now I've got you here actually, what's your kind of take on e-tech? I don't know. Um, it always confuses me. Uh, yeah, that... good. I'm glad you said that. Otherwise, my first application would be pointless. <laughs> but uh, I, I, so e-tech is the traveler's diarrhea. And I, I think I've yeah. gotten it a few times, you know, haven't gone to places like the Gambia and whatnot. We had um, an e-tech paper, um, I think now a couple of years ago. Uh, the first author was uh, Vaishnavi um, from our lab. Um, she's since moved on to, to hospital-acquired infections, but um, she did a pretty good global e-tech paper. Um, and, and I think it was a very difficult topic because maybe it's, maybe it's confusing because not a lot of people touch on it, like S-tech or V-tech are the more public health impact things. But I think e-tech is maybe um, not not as as viewed it's it's undervalued right now in the literature i've just done a paper with uh, astrid von menzer uh oh, sorry have you? metzer yeah and she has got eight different lineages to find for etech and has done mm. you know beautiful hand curated uh, reference genomes and hand annotated reference genomes 
And uh, so it's quite nice defining all those lineages. It was based on some earlier work she had done on a kind of a large scale study. Yeah, yeah. She did the kind of, found, or she was the first author on the kind of foundational nature genetics e-tech paper back in yep. 2014. But yeah, it's essentially just a bit kind of, you know, obviously some people, those guys have, in Sweden have done some work and people have done, I think Jason Saal and sounds like uh, CDC have done some as well. But essentially, it's just not super well defined, not super well characterized, especially not in terms of a deep dive in, you know, a single high burden country. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about, about e-tech uh, and maybe even doing some immunology if I can find an immunology immunologist to collaborate with. I think we focus on entera hemorrhagic E. coli because we've got the elephant in the room of 0157 and that's fairly clonal and your ST um, 131s as well. Like they're, they're there and they're, they're well studied and, but I don't think there is such a dominant pathogenic clone in E-Tech is there? No, I guess Andrew probably knows the latest. I'm, I'm working on Astrid's uh, 2014 paper. This is where I say I'm a computer scientist and uh, I will claim ignorance. <laughs> well, I mean, someone, someone can Yeah, I think there's me. like eight, eight different lineages, right? Someone there can tweet me in eight, yeah. yeah, and they all have these different virulence gene constellations and you find it in healthy kids and in sick and in kids with diarrhea. So maybe I'll do some pathogen GWAS, look for genes associated with sickness rather than health. Yeah, so kind of run a big prospective study and collect a bunch of stool samples from healthy and sick kids, obviously with all relevant ethical permissions in place. Um, so you're kind of giving away your fellowship here and someone might be listening yeah. and just type up, you know, scoop you. <laughs> but but well, you I mean, know he's... He's also advertising because he was able to advertise on the podcast for a collaborator. So maybe he's maybe he has an, an advantage here. The the microbinfi bump. Yeah, I'll definitely mention you guys in my Nobel if, uh, if if I find if we get the etech etech Nobel. But I just find I I haven't got much time for like being secret with ideas. I'd much rather mention them to people and talk about them and. I don't want to say ideas are easy, but delivering projects is hard. Like coming up with an idea for a project is not the hard bit of the project, right? Yeah, especially in, in E. coli, there is so much well, in the, on the genomic you? side to do. After your family's three years are up, if you were going to a next country, because you might still stay there because it's such a beautiful country, but if you went to the next country, what's, what's your next target? Yeah, oh, tricky one, you know, I'm like, I do like living in kind of exotic and interesting places, but sometimes you also just want to go to Marks and Spencer's, you know. There's a lot of countryside in, in the U.S., especially around us in Atlanta, if, uh, if you're thinking <laughs> about it. Yeah, hike the Appalachians. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of, basically what happened to us in Vietnam and, and Malawi, like I was never oh man, I really want to go and live in Vietnam. And then, oh, I really want to go and live in Malawi. You know, the, the work definitely brought us here. And that, that's awesome. And I, I love both the countries. But I'm not kind of, I haven't got a, like a list of countries I want to live in. I just think that I'm kind of fortunate that 
you know, we both do jobs that kind of take us to interesting places. And, you know, I'm kind of, I'm pretty open-minded really. You know, if someone said, oh, you want to do a faculty job or a tenure track job in the US or Australia or UK, then I'd, I'd probably do that. Or, you know, if you, someone said, oh, do you want to go and work in South America and, you know, do kind of continue the, the work in high burden countries, then yeah, I'd, I'd be pretty interested in that as well. Have you been doing any COVID work, by the way? Zero, zero. I was all braced for in Vietnam because obviously very close to China, uh, lots of connections with China. And I thought, you know, it's, it's going to kick off in Vietnam like before it kicks off anywhere else. And obviously Vietnam has just gone and been all competent and uh, business-like in their public health response and put the kibosh on that. So um my yeah, wife does nothing it? but COVID. So uh, yeah, yeah, Vietnam's done incredibly well. So we're we're doing a project with uh, Zimbabwe at the moment. Oh yeah, and we have gone and sequenced ninety-seven genomes. So this is kind of a f- the first public announcement of it. So yeah, ninety-seven genomes, and we found some kind of interesting stuff. But of course, mm-hmm. you know, when you share land, or it can be hard to to keep things out, particularly when they're they're maybe porous and, and that kind of thing. I mean, I guess they're just trying to, to slow slow the inevitable. But, you know, there's this kind of big mystery as to, as to why the mortality in, in Africa seems to be relatively low, um, even after accounting for the um, different age structure of the population here. Basically, there was a thousand bioinformaticians who knew more about COVID before I got anywhere near it. So um, I just kind of made it emotional decision to not really uh, professionally engage too much. Thanks, Phil, for joining us today. We've been talking about bioinformatics at the frontier where things might not always be reliable. And yeah, I'd like to thank Phil for joining us today and see you next time. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.